Sci-Fix. Welcome to Sci-Fix. Welcome to Sci-Fix, everyone. How you doing today, Katie? I'm doing well. Yeah, this is our first episode. It's a little nerve-wracking, but it's also one. very exciting. Exciting, nerve-wracking right. uh, world that we don't know anything about. <laughs> yes, yeah, especially me. Oh, you know. Paul. My name is Katie, obviously to you. And my name is Tim, obviously to Katie. So, Tim, why did we even start doing this? Why did we start doing this? Well, you said to me one day at work, where we work as booksellers, <laughs> that you yes. were interested in learning more about science fiction. And mm -hmm. I thought, wow, that's a really great idea. We should have a book club or a book discussion group or something like that so that we can read and discuss. And then you had this other brilliant idea. Uh, maybe we should make a podcast out of it. That'd be really fun because neither of us knows how to do any of that. Like, so wait up. a minute, let's do that. Yeah. Um, well, I noticed too, like I, because of COVID and everything, I started listening to like a ridiculous amount of podcasts and I noticed that there wasn't really one that I could find uh, about like science fiction literature, right? like right, old right. science classic fiction literature, you know? And uh, we'll work mm -hmm. our way forward, but we're going to start with classic stuff, you know, from, from the golden and silver age, you know, 1950s. Um, well, and it's fun, too, because we're going to read the stuff that, you know, we're, we're going to read, like, the Heinleins and the, the you know, and the Asimovs everything, and the all the big stuff. And the Besters and, and uh, the Philip K. Yeah, and we're also going to read, like, the stuff that's not as, like, necessarily as mainstream, I think, when you think about science right. fiction, too. People like James Blish and who else? Let's see. Maybe Andre Norton. Uh, other people that maybe people haven't heard of before. So that should be fun. That should be yeah. interesting. We're going to have a lot to talk about yeah. and lots of opinions to share. Yeah, I hope it's going to be a good thing. So, Tim, you had a question that you posed. I did have a question. <laughs> so to start out with, very, very first episode, we're a little bit iffy about everything, but we do have some ideas. So one of those ideas is we were talking yesterday, and I thought we might start this whole thing out with a question. What is science fiction? A definitive answer, definitive in quotation marks, uh, from both me and, and Katie. So, Katie, I'll ask you first. When I say the words science fiction, what comes to mind? Well, immediately, kind of like I mentioned uh, kind of prior to this, I think like pew pew aliens, <laughs> yes. you know. But, <laughs> but actually, you know, upon like further reflection, mm. um, I think science fiction is just the way that a science any kind of science impacts society or an individual and nice. kind of just like a discourse about that so that's what i think and but i also think pew pew i mean it's both of know. those things you know i think that's a great answer i like that so i jotted something down last night and here's what i said and i need to read this because i can't remember it verbatim in my head um the notions of hard sci-fi versus soft sci-fi are oversimplifications of uh, uh, something much more much more difficult and, and much harder to, to define. Um, I think a good sci-fi novel has elements of both of those things. Facts-based science, relatable characters, compelling plots, uh, social and personal issues. The best science fiction imagines fantastic worlds in which we see the ideas of our own time played out and resolved. So... <laughs> when, when I have ideas I like that, it. I have to write them down and say them out loud. Otherwise, I'll just ramble forever and nobody will get the point. Um, and if we need to have some 
time in the future where we talk about hard versus soft science fiction, that's fine. We can have like a half an episode to talk about that because some people might not know what that I is. I think we should so. because I I don't know what that is particularly, hey, hey. so I think uh, we'll, we'll there, get to that. There's an episode um, for you. Content. Content, <laughs> content creators. So as far as our structure, mm-hmm. Tim, what, we, what are we going to be reading and how are we going to be reading so, it? We thought we would start this podcast out. At least at the outset, and it's going to be a while because there's a lot of a lot of this involved. We're going to start reading the winners of the Hugo Awards uh, from the beginning in 1953. Uh, we'll go up until uh, about 1965, and we'll catch up with the Nebula Awards. Uh, it'll get a little bit more complicated then, but up until that point, it should be one, two, three, very easy reading uh, Hugo winners. Anybody that's interested in science fiction probably knows what the Hugo Awards are. Um, but you might not know exactly what they are. I thought we would talk a little bit at the beginning about what those are and what it involves and uh, how they're decided and all of that stuff. I yeah. love it. Yeah. Give it to me. What okay. are the Hugo's? <laughs> the Hugo Awards are given every year uh, for science fiction or fantasy uh, published in or translated to English during the previous calendar year. So, the for example, if, if we gave the, the Hugo Awards this year, they would be for books that came out last year. Um, the nebulas are a little okay. different. We'll get to that later. Um, they don't match up directly, but that's okay. We don't have to worry about that today. Um, the novel yeah. award is available for works of fiction of over 40,000 words. Uh, there's also awards for uh, short stories, novelettes, and novellas, but we're, we're really not interested in those now. We're interested in the novel awards, so those are the ones we're going to be reading. It's, it's not a big... Um, group of people that that nominates and votes on these things honestly uh, some people might think it's this big shadowy organization but it's really not it's members of past and current years world science fiction convention they can nominate up to five items per category uh, for novel novella short story etc anybody that's a current or past member can nominate things uh, but only the current members are able to vote on them the top five items in each category are placed on a final ballot uh, then the members vote on them, uh, and then all the votes are tallied up. If a nominee has a majority at that point, then fine, then they're the winner if they have more than 50%. Uh, if not, the least popular nominee, the one that got the least votes, is eliminated. And then they take the ballots and they redistribute them out again, and then people vote one, two, three, four again until a nominee has more than 50%. Now, this is really complicated. It's, it's sometimes called ranked choice voting or uh, preferential voting uh, in which you put one, two, three, four, five, etc. how many nominees there are. Your first choice, second choice, and so on. Sometimes they never got a nominee um, or, or a winner. Like in 1957, no, nobody was able to get 50%, so they didn't give a novel award. So that's why yeah. nothing won, yeah. or there wasn't like a Hugo for exactly. 19... Oh, I just thought that they just took a break and didn't No, read they read things. They just something. couldn't get a majority for anything, so they decided, yeah. No novel will get anything, even though that's terrible. There were so many great novels that came out that year. But later on, after that, they kind of formalized the rules. So every year since then, there's been a novel award. So that was just kind of a kind of okay. an anomaly. That's how they're awarded. That's what they are. Yeah, I like to think that uh, as you were describing it, it's like some sort of like occult yeah. secret ritual <laughs> where like all of these like D and D nerds are wearing like these black cloaks and carrying candles and like little golden right. strips of paper with like their 
their nominations. So that's that's definitely I how mean, I'm going to perfectly proceed fine, and that this. probably might be how it was handled. I don't really know. That would be secret right. information. They, they're not going to tell us that. That's for the uh, yeah. that's for no, the World no. Council of the Hugo Awards. <laughs> Those five permanent members yeah, that yeah. nobody knows who they are. They always wear cloaks. So yeah, that's how that's done. And uh, you might wonder, Katie, how did the Hugo Awards get their name? I don't know. Mm. Often. How, how did, did they, they Tim? Well, some of you may or may not know, uh, there was this guy named Hugo Gernsback. And Hugo Gernsback was a bit of a crackpot. Some people might say he was more than that. He was a little bit of a thief and, and, and a jerk. In any case, he was uh, an immigrant from Luxembourg uh, who came to America in the early 1900s. And he is the guy who founded Amazing Stories magazine in 1926. So that's widely considered to be the first major science fiction magazine in circulation. And because of that, he's widely regarded as the father of sci-fi. You know, whatever his personality flaws may be, <laughs> he's considered by most people to be the guy who really popularized science fiction. So okay. in addition to his editorial work, he was the first person to organize a uh, a major science fiction uh, fan and writers group called the Science Fiction League uh, that started in 1934 uh, and it was dedicated to, to writers and fans and it lasted until 1943. Uh, he also helped to popularize radio and uh, television broadcasting. He actually even owned a radio station in New York City at one point during the 20s. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, like I said, he also developed this reputation uh, for stinginess and downright thievery. Uh, he made a lot of money himself, paid himself an exorbitant salary, uh, but didn't really like paying his writers. <laughs> he, if he didn't have to write, pay them, he wouldn't. Oh, know. wow. He would, he would thrive he, he in our culture would, today. H.P. Yeah. Um, Lovecraft, some of you may know, uh, actually called him Hugo the Rat <laughs> because of his... Yeah. I wish that H.P. Lovecraft would have called me Katie the, Katie rat. the rat or something. Yeah. Unfortunate, yes, but kind of cool, cool. You know, too. they have that reputation that H.P. Lovecraft actually calls you something. Yeah. Uh, so that's who Hugo Gernsback is, and that's who the Hugo Awards are named for. You know, the early, early uh, people in the World Science Fiction Society decided, you know, he's a, he's a kind of a jerk, but he did a lot for us, so let's lay, uh, we'll name him after him. The idea of presenting the awards was just kind of a one-off at first when they went to the Philadelphia Convention in 1953. They thought, hey, let's give an award. We'll call it the Hugo. And they really didn't think they'd ever do it again. And uh, the next year they didn't do it. In 1954 there was no award at the convention. Mm -hmm. But then in 1955 they were like, hey, let's do this again. That was a lot of fun. And I think people were interested in it. Well, we'll start doing that. So with the exception of 1957 that we talked about earlier, since 1955, they've done it every year. So, you know, more than half a century, what, 70 years now, wow, um, we've had a Hugo Award. Do you know, Tim, why it, like, started to become, like, a recognized and distinguished thing? Was it just purely because these were distinguished people saying, like, this book is a good one and here's an award for it? Like, how does an award hold question. any weight? Um, and that's kind of beyond my expertise right now. That's something we can look into. To be honest, yeah. science fiction up until probably the late 50s and early 60s was kind of looked on as poor literature. Um, people people made fun of it. Really? Uh, that's not real writing. That's not real literature. Well, I mean, you're wasting your time. They kind of put it on the same level as comic books, which we now know mm -hmm. <laughs> can be fine literature, even is a, a Hugo Award for graphic novels now. But at the time, people oh, people didn't think cool. much of sci-fi. And 
it was because of the work of people like this that got together every year and gave these awards and said, hey, there's real value in this stuff. You need to read it because it's really telling us things about our own selves, even though it's about you know, other worlds and other universes and, and other cultures. So maybe there's something here for us. So yeah, I'll do a little research into that. Maybe we can talk about, you know, how did this get to be so important? You know, because it didn't take really long before people started to pay attention to it. And it could just be one of those things, like you mentioned, that like it, it was very much a presence like science fiction, whether or not it was appreciated. Right. You know, it, these these occult <laughs> members uh, that formed this league of gentlemen like decided like, hey, we're just going to say what we think is the stuff. Exactly. Like, this is a good one, you know, and just something as simple as that could just start a revolution. Exactly. In science and fiction you were you're right when you said league of gentlemen. Uh, with a few exceptions, it was definitely a boys club back in those days. And we can talk, mm -hmm. you know, in each episode about kind of the strengths and weaknesses of, of all of the major award winners being white guys <laughs> at first yeah. for many years, yeah. actually. So, which is, you know, as a reflection of the times and, and who was involved and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, that's, that's for another time. Well, and like you said, though, I mean, proceeding forward, we plan to read every single We're book that won it. the Hugo and eventually Nebula. The good, the good and, and the bad. The bad oh, so. yeah. And there are some bad ones. <laughs> well, I wanted to kind of mention, I guess, the big point of the episode today is we're talking about uh, the 1953 winner, The Demolished Man yes. by Alfred Bester. Yes, we are. He's an interesting you wanna, fella. You want to tell us a little bit about him? I do, yeah, I know. So, a few things on him. We're not going to get into his, his whole shebang of a life, but he started writing science fiction, actually, when he was like 25 years old, which is very inspiring, honestly, because prior to that, he went to school in Pennsylvania. He actually started law school, but then dropped nah, out. Not was like, for mm, me. Nope, this isn't <laughs> for me. So just like one day when he was 25, he was like, all right, time to start writing science fiction, essentially. Nice. He, um, like a lot of the writers uh, in that time, I'm assuming, he published uh, all of his works in science fiction yeah. magazines, uh, Thrilling Wonders, Startling Stories, and I guess most notably, John W. Campbell's uh, Astounding yes. Science Fiction. So I guess that was a, a big was. one of the time. Uh, and up until recently, there was a Campbell Award for science fiction. My understanding is Joseph W. Campbell like edited a bunch of stories and posted them in this yeah, magazine. Yeah, that's exactly that what he was. A, he was a major editor until the seventies. Well, that's a big way that uh, that's how Alfred Bester kind of got a start in science fiction, at least. Um, funny enough, after writing science fiction stories and having him publish in magazines for a little while, he started working for DC Comics because a few of his editors at uh, one of the magazines kind of went over to DC and was like, "Hey, you should come and." check out these comic <laughs> books you wow. know or however check they out say these it comics. <laughs> yeah check them out it's kind of cool uh he actually created the villain solomon it. grundy who was introduced in the green lantern series and apparently he wrote the whole green lantern and like in like the darkest day and the blackest night like really? he wrote that little that. thing that he says and I couldn't find too many sources for that. That's just kind right. of like a little tidbit. But apparently he wrote that. One so, of those I mean, apocryphal cool. things that you hear um, about the early comic book industry that may or may yeah. not be true, but it's a good story. Regardless, it's kind of cool that he kind of made his mark in the in the comics industry as well, which is so funny because, like you said, uh, back in the day, it's like science fiction and comic books were just kind of like, bleh, why you know, like, why stuff? are you reading that? Uh, some other things about Alfred Bester, um, he has been noted kind of as like an ancestor to the cyberpunk genre. Um, which I thought was really cool. Uh, one notable thing that he wrote that we didn't read today, but I kind of wanted to mention was uh, The Star is My Destination. Um, <laughs> it's described as a science fiction retelling of The Count of Monte Cristo, 
but yeah. with like teleportation which is very interesting to me like that's kind of crazy but that work in particular is like a cyberpunk right. classic that came out apparently. a few years after um, um the demolished man um one last thing really or i guess two last things and there's a tv show called babylon 5 which i think I've a never colleague seen. of ours is a big fan um, apparently there's a psychop in the show that they named after alfred <laughs> bester which when we start talking about the demolished mm-hmm. man is pretty relevant it's the psychic, psychic uh, yes. kind of cop so um and i guess one last thing i really wanted to give a little bit of space to is in Nor- new york city when he was living there he socialized in like a little club or society called yes. the hydra club which is very cool because my basic understanding of what this is is a bunch of the who's who of science fiction hanging out in Frederick yeah. Pohl's apartment, just like broing it up and talking <laughs> about like science fiction and ideas. And like in school, I learned about like these notable artists all hanging out in like oh, bars yeah, yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. and conversing. Probably with you're each thinking other. about um, salons in um, in France, yeah, during yes. the Renaissance and and the yes. classical period. Uh, when philosophy and science were really becoming, you know, widespread and they were able to talk about those things. They couldn't talk about them in public, but they could go in the salons and talk about them in private. Yeah, it's like, oh, hey, here's this, like, really cool famous artist ordering a gin and tonic and talking about his day-to-day <laughs> life. Like, let me go chat with him a little bit right. and bounce and off And I imagine ideas. these early sci-fi guys were probably doing a little drinking themselves. <laughs> Well, in one article I was kind of reading that you sent me, it's like they described it as like, oh, a Hydra Club meeting. That, that was, was a party. party. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you kind of want to talk about the uh, the David Kyle? Dave Kyle was a member of the Hydra Club. Uh, he may not be a well-known writer to people now, but he was he was pretty uh, influential and, and famous at the time in the 50s. Um, and he gave a description of one night when Alfred Bester was at a meeting. Uh, they were talking about proposing a fantasy writer's guild, which uh, Hydra was going to form. Uh, and uh, Alfie, as they called him, Alfred Bester, he was very supportive of this because he kind of saw the guild as being a union, like an actual workers' union to fight for authors' rights. Because, like I said earlier, people like Gernsbach and other magazine editors, they just didn't want to pay. And this was early on, and and major publishers weren't really willing to to publish science fiction because it was a risk. Like, ah, nobody's going to buy that. I don't want to. I don't want to pay my money for that stuff. So that was his idea, but that was not the idea of some of the other people. They just wanted to have it kind of be an educational and informational forum um, between the public and science fiction writers. And he's like, no, we we've got that. We don't need that. We need a real union. Um, when he figured out that's what it wasn't going to be. He was like, no, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. So he left and went to Europe for a long time and didn't come back. So apparently this was something he felt really strong. Um, anyway, but yeah. later on, this is actually where the science fiction writers of America idea came from. And that was an actual writer's union. So in a way, he kind of did get his way in the end. Uh, just an interesting, yeah. I love the idea of like uh of just getting so mad that you're like fine i'm gonna go to europe they'll listen to me there like i'm gonna get out of here that's really neat i just think that's kind of a neat little window into his life well especially shows that he's a he's a guy that's gonna fight you know like he didn't like something and he was like well i'm gonna fight for this and if it's not gonna happen i'm not gonna associate myself with it um and that kind of thing would have been dangerous in the 50s you know uh mccarthyism and anti-communist witch hunts were going on and anybody that tried to form a union of any kind would have been suspected 
So it's pretty courageous on his part. Mm-hmm. But that's a little bit Alfie about Bester, Mr. Alfie Bester. Better known as Alfred Bester, the first Hugo winner. Want to talk a little bit about the book now? I think we um, should, So yeah. the book, uh, if you missed it, is called The Demolished Man by Alfred Bester. came out in 1952. Before that, it was serialized in magazines, like everything was at the time. Uh, so they had to take the chapters and form them into an actual book. I'll give you kind of a plot summary of what's happening uh, in the book. We don't want to go too much over it in case you want to read it. We don't want to give away any spoilers. Ben Reich is the head of an interplanetary commercial enterprise, and he's troubled by nightmares and financial troubles. So, naturally, as one does, he plans to kill his business rival, Craig Courtney. Uh, yeah. I do yeah. at least once a week. I'm not surprised. You know, yeah. We have so it's many normal. business rivals yeah. in the book business. So this is all we so do. he can yes. avoid bankruptcy and, and uh, take over to Courtney's company and, and make himself more powerful. Uh, the problem with that is that in Reich's world, there are powerful psychics known as espers. And this is kind of a neologism, uh, ESP users, so espers together. They can predict what it would be murderer's plans would be before they happen. Uh, so he can't just go out and try to kill him because somebody's going to know. The novel then describes what happens when Reich bribes another esper to help him commit a crime unheard of for 70 years. Um, so that's that's essentially the, the plot of the novel. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned that Reich himself is not an esper. Uh, he can't read other people's thoughts, but society is full of people that can't. Yeah, so the society um, is uh, not necessarily balanced in a way where there are people who can and people who can't, but there's definitely a good mix of people with this, like, uh, this ability right. that is, I mean, I get the feeling that the ability is like, uh, like almost a status in society. It's like you're... Yes, definitely. You know? um, because you have Esper Ones, which are the highest level Espers. Uh, they're the ones that are in the guild. Um they have this, this Esper guild that they swear loyalty to and they can't reveal their secrets and they can't use their powers for evil. And it's very comic book-esque. Um, and if they do, they get outcast and, and shunned. Then there's Esper 2s, which are slightly under that, and Esper 3s, which are the very bottom level. And then there's everybody else who can't uh, use uh, ESP. It's kind of like... So it's very stratified. And it's kind of yeah. like they're walking, like the people who can't use ESP in this way, it's like they're walking inside of like a big inside joke. Like life is just like not understanding <laughs> exactly. what's going on. And even reading the book, because you're getting it in the perspective of, uh, of Reich, is just like, what is going on? Are they interacting with each other? Like, you know, it's just as frustrating reading the book sometimes. What's happening? I can't, I can't read your mind. That's why, yeah, there's actually he employs a, uh, one of the espers as an analyst so that he can get some kind of insight into how they work. You can imagine it, it's kind of hard to live in a society like that. Yeah, absolutely. So so Ben Reich is, uh, um, is the most charming character. Isn't he's a charming guy. He's, um, he's charming to people that meet him, but he's very morally ambiguous uh, and very much somebody that would shoot your grandma to get $5. Not, not really a nice guy. No. Um, business tycoon. Like I said, he plans to kill his, his competitor so he can take over his assets. Uh, he's very direct. He's very glad-handing. Very, very nice. Uh, but those are kind of undercut. He has these, these flaws of serious dread and inadequacy, feelings of inadequacy. Um, and he doesn't know where they come from. And he has these nightmares uh, about the man with no face. Uh, the man with no face is constantly... You know, following him and, and shadowing him, and he wakes up in a cold sweat every night 
can't figure out where these nightmares are coming from, can't figure out who the man with no face is. So, not only is he a sociopath, but he's also kind of haunted by nightmares that make him a little bit... Uh, my favorite thing about... Unpredictable. Yeah, my favorite thing about Reich is the fact that he goes from, like, zero to a hundred in, like, half a second. So, like, he's constantly yeah. either yeah. being kind of intelligent and manipulative and, like, you know, you're, you're really getting an insight into his mind. Or he's, like, just screaming. He is just in pure... Or he's screaming, I'll kill you! Yeah, he's just in pure rage. Yeah. It's, like, one of the two yep. uh, little scales. There's no in-between. There's no in-between <laughs> with him, yeah. Yeah, it's either one or a hundred. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that's Ben Reich. Mm -hmm. he, he's an interesting guy. Um, his adversary uh, is Lincoln Powell. Lincoln Powell is a class one esper like we discussed earlier, he's in his 30s. He's the prefect of police, which essentially means he's the chief detective who is put on this case when de Courtney is killed. Very handsome, intelligent, charming. Uh, they want him to be the president of the Esper Guild, but he's not married. They have to be married to another Esper. So it's a really strange thing. I, I guess it's got a lot to do with eugenics and, and breeding. And <laughs> it's like, are you going to be able to produce the next generation of high-powered espers. If not, we don't want you being a part of our organization. They don't want to, like, um, sully the waters. Like, they want to create yeah, perfect, yeah, like... Exactly. They, they want... Eventually, the, the mainstream of espers want everybody to have this ability. Mm -hmm. But there is another group of espers that don't want to share it. They want to kind of keep it to themselves. So, yeah. He lives alone, all by himself. Lives in a house. Espers can't live in apartments because they would be bombarded with the thoughts of other people living around them. I'm not really sure, you know, how that prevents people from living in nearby houses from interfering with their thoughts. But anyway, so uh, can't live in apartment buildings. They have to live in houses. He's got kind of a dual personality. And uh, we'll talk a little bit later about the dualities going on in this book. So he's kind of the, on one hand, a role model Esper. And then on the other hand, he calls himself Dishonest Abe. He's like a compulsive liar. And I think it's a game with him sometimes. He he with thoughts constantly and can hear everybody else's thoughts. They can hear his. And sometimes I think he just lies to to amuse himself. You're like, haha, let's make up this thing and see how many people can go along with it. You know, he's yeah, he's, an, he's an upstanding cop, but on the other hand, he can be kind of a, a liar. So. Which is, like, super strange reading it, too, because uh, there are times where I got a little confused reading because I was like, is he, like, being kind of weird right now? Is he trying yep. to, like, manipulate a situation? <laughs> or yep. we talked about that one story that they mentioned uh, about something he did he was caught on. I, I don't remember exactly what that was. There was something, well, there was a couple of them. He said uh, he makes up stories about heroic cops that never existed mm -hmm. uh or he, he talks one at one point about how s he's so stressed out because of his job that he becomes left-handed for a while and then it just yeah. kind of goes back to right-handedness and then there's this there's a joke that that runs throughout the book um that has something to do with him lying about the weather that's uh, the weather's been stolen to. um and uh his colleagues kind of rib him about it now they're like who stole the weather powell uh, referring back to this joke that he was, he he had done earlier in his his career. No, they don't really talk about what that is, but no. you can tell that there's you know, there's two sides to this guy. You know, yeah, he's not entirely trustworthy, um, which, which nobody in this book is. <laughs> yeah, nobody that that's is. one big so. thing about the book is like everybody is just definitely has very visible faults. Everyone is everybody, not. Yeah. 
they're all very strange. Protagonist, antagonist, you know, mm-hmm. dualities. Everybody has a dual personality in this book. Yeah. We don't, I guess we don't need to go over every one of the characters uh, in depth. Those are the two main characters. Uh, Barbara de Courtney mm-hmm. is the daughter of Cray de Courtney, who's by Ben Reich. Um, she's kind of a latent esper. She has abilities, but, but she's never really been trained to use them. And she actually sees her father get killed by Reich, and this puts her in a catatonia. She she kind of flips out and loses her mind and kind of just disappears into the street. And Reich's like, go get that girl. I don't want her to get away. And she has all the information, but she's kind of lost her mind. There's Mary Noyes. She's another Esper. She's an Esper too. She's a friend of Lincoln. Uh, she's in love with Powell, but he doesn't love her. Um, it's kind of sad because this... Yeah, Mary, Mary makes Mary. me really sad. Yeah, it's really sad. She makes me very yeah. sad. Um, sadly enough, her character really isn't developed either. So she kind of gets left out of a lot of stuff. There's Augustus Tate, who is a psychiatrist, is hired by Reich to help him in his crime, uh, to keep other espers from figuring out what he's doing, uh, and to find out what other people are thinking. There's uh, some minor characters. Uh, Kino Quizard. I love these names. They're yeah. amazing. Um, he's an albino. He's a blind albino leader of an underworld organization, and he employs these people called gimpsters, <laughs> which are gangsters apparently. And Reich hires him to help find Barbara de Courtney because he knows that she's witnessed uh, the murder and he needs to find her. This gets very complicated at the end. Anyway, uh, he's lured into space by Reich and has a quote accident while he's traveling along with him. So you know. Reich tries to get rid of all of his accomplices so there won't be any witnesses. There's Chuka Frood. I love this name. Chuka Frood. She owns a brothel. Um, she's a latent telepath. Um, and that's where Barbara de Courtney ends up somehow in her house, which is called the Rainbow House. And it's this, this strange collection of rainbow-colored fragments that's left over from the last war. And it's it's got all these dens and warrens and secret rooms. And, and uh, that's where Barbara de Courtney is being being held there's Duffy White yeah that part um in particular real quick talk about Chuka some more uh, her house when I was reading it felt like such a labyrinth but like such a beautiful yeah, yeah. confusing colorful I labyrinth so. yeah. um it was really fun to read about and I really liked uh her too she was kind she of she was a, a big mess. mess definitely had all kinds of problems <laughs> but a yeah. strong I mean and and in a book that's filled with kind of problematic female characters um she was kind of a strong woman figure i thought she was really good um yeah i i really like the description of it too um very different from something you'd expect from early 1950s uh, sci-fi it's very psychedelic well that's what surprised me because that sounds like something like i mean what like 60s or 70s that's yeah, getting into definitely so mm-hmm. maybe ahead of its time um yeah yeah uh let's see there's duffy wygand Duffy is a, <laughs> she's a composer who Ben Wright goes to, to write a jingle so that he can memorize and keep Esper thoughts out of his head. Because apparently in this world, if you have these little earworms, as they call them, uh, these little jingles or songs in your head and you're constantly repeating them, they can't see through those thoughts. That, so I want to talk about okay. that a little bit because that feels like almost like an accurate portrayal of like a mental illness kind of to me like my first thought is like 
you can't <laughs> seriously like you can't like express yourself correctly or you can't like, i don't know filter information right if you constantly have something in your mind repeating nagging at your right. brain and in this case it's like no one can read his mind accurately if he's just constantly singing right. a song like it's it was just kind of really interesting how that was how he was gonna uh, beat the bad Definitely. guys in his in And the his more mind. you learn about Reich, the more complicated it gets. <laughs> because you find out he's hiding a lot of stuff from himself. <laughs> anyway, so having this little song in his head is not helping. So, Tim, I, I really need you to re <laughs> or sing what the song sounded like oh, to you. Man. This I is very go important. I didn't mark it. Well, well I'll, I'll start us off because I, uh, I pulled it up okay. here on the side, all right? So I kind of had like this, like, so it's like, tensor, said the tensor, said the tensor, said the tensor, and then it goes like, tensor, apprehension, indecent. I like your version better than mine. It's just, it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of sexy. Mine was very dorky, but I'll sing it. When I read this, this is how I heard it. I heard it very, very 1940s, 50s kind of jingle. Tensor said the tensor, tensor said the tensor, okay. tension, apprehension, and dissension have begun. <laughs> oh, that's okay, I, I like it, that, yeah. I, I can see that's both like, ways, you know. You can, that's like something I could hear, like, Yeah, I mean, it's the like kids when you're doing singing. a jump rope. It's, oh. it's like something you're not really thinking about, yeah. but it's just keeping your mind occupied. And it was so funny, too, because I even found myself, once I had my own version of the jingle in my head, as I was reading, like, I would find myself going over it in times it wasn't even mentioned like it got stuck in <laughs> which my is head, what it's supposed which to do which was insane yeah so there's sam atkins he is also an esper one he's a psychiatrist mm -hmm. like gus tate except he's not a psychopath um he lives up on venus and uh bester doesn't really talk about how people are able to survive on the surface of venus which is like 500 degrees fahrenheit all the time um we we don't have to get into that <laughs> we don't need but to that's really where he lives and that. he helps to to help charity cases and hangers on and he he spends all of his time trying to to you know help troubled victims of of esper violence and etc he was he was created courtney's doctor and then there's jerry church who is he's kind of a minor character and he seems like he's going to be more major but he doesn't turn out to be a whole lot he runs a pawn shop i just wanted to say about him oh, he's, he's very angry and full of just like oh yeah pent yeah. up rage um, and he used to work for reich and Reich made millions and millions of dollars using his Esper powers, but Reich framed him, and he got thrown out of the Esper Guild, and now he just runs a pawn shop, so he that's why he's angry. So there's a lot of action that takes mm -hmm. place in his pawn shop, and people get killed, and terrible things happen. There's Maria Beaumont. Uh, it's her apartment uh, where the murder actually takes place while they're playing a game called uh, Sardines. There's this whole really... Yeah convoluted plan that Reich has. He, he goes to a bookstore, or he goes to the pawn shop, and he buys this book of ancient party games. And the only party game that's that's legible in the book is the one called Sardines. Knowing Maria, he sends it to her, and knowing her, oh, she's going to play that game. Because uh, it makes the... When, when you play the game, you have to have the, the room dark. So nobody will be able to see anything. Um, and he thinks this is his perfect chance to, to get to Courtney. It's so funny to me that like, okay, so he buys this book and the only legible 
So could you imagine getting a book in the mail and like only <laughs> one page, like from you, for instance, and only one page is legible, and oh, it's like she took this and fabulous. was like, "That's the game that I want to play." I'm not going to think about. Yeah, I'm not going to think about the fact that like this right? is kind of weird. I can't read anything else, and most maybe this is a message. Would, would be but, suspicious, but Bar mm. uh, Maria is not. She wants to play the game. Let's play the game at my party. So She's much like, oh, fun, oh, oh, eh? This sounds like so much fun. Anyway, yeah. So those are those are <laughs> kind of the major and minor characters. There are a lot of other minor, minor characters. We won't go over them. Um, all of them are interesting in different ways. Um, all of them are troubled and problematic in different ways. Mm -hmm. They all really play into the story, too, very well yes, with one another, definitely. bouncing off of personality And like I said, that dual stuff. personality um, perspective that all of them have, they're always bumping into each other's and in unexpected ways. So those are the people, that's the plot. Um, anything you want to add before we go on to some of the themes? I honestly am just so <laughs> glad that we got to sing our versions of the song because I feel like it's honestly like a weight lifted off of my now shoulder. Like now I have shared this information I and I can hopefully I'm forget gonna, it. Next time I see you at I work, I'm going to start forget singing it. that song. So let's talk about some of um, some of the themes in the book. If, if any of you are familiar with Joe Walton, um, Joe Walton is a major science fiction writer. She she's won a Hugo and a Nebula now. She wrote um, a really nice book called an informal an informal history of the Hugos, um, and it goes up to the year two thousand. Uh, she decided to stop then because she won her Hugo after that, and she didn't want to be, um, you know, preferential or anything. Anyway, she she talks about some of the Freudian themes in this book. There's a lot of Freudian analysis and Freudian psychoanalysis going on. The word doppelganger would have been familiar to Freud. Um, doppelganger is kind of, every, people always say, you know, everybody has a double in the world. Uh, there's always somebody out there that looks like you, but they don't look exactly yeah. like you. And that's unsettling. If they were an exact copy of you and reacted the same way as you, that would be fine. But they might look almost exactly like you with some slight differences and Freud says that creates a feeling of unheimlich which you know I don't want to get too too Freudian technical but that means unhomelike it doesn't feel natural it feels weird uh, so that's why we get this feeling of when we see lifelike robots we get this feeling of uneasiness it's like that looks weird that doesn't look normal it shouldn't look that way it's like there's just something just like yes. so subtly off. I mean, everything that makes else you just is spot really on, but then there's just one or two little things that are off that make it wrong. There's a lot of that going on in this book, I think, um, mm -hmm. especially with the double personalities. There's Powell's alter ego, dishonest Abe. He's got his his good side and his bad side. He's good cop and bad cop. He doesn't need another person. Uh, I won't go too much into the details, but Ben Reich and Barbara are kind of twin figures in this book. Um, twin sides of the same person, in a way. Um, and then when Barbara witnesses the murder and kind of goes crazy, uh, there's an episode when she, Lincoln Powell and Mary kind of regress her to childhood. Uh, so she's got this childhood mind, but she's a grown-up woman. Uh, so there's there's two sides of her personality there. Um, so there's a lot of characters like that. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of sexuality and violence. Some of it is subtle because obviously it's 1952. You can't really say that stuff right out in the open. But uh, the party at Maria's is 
kind of like an orgy. <laughs> uh, it's not really described that way. Chuka Fruits place is actually a brothel. Uh, and we don't really know why Barbara's there. She may have been captured by some of Chuka Fruits people and put to work as a prostitute. It's not really described. Reich is kind of this super predator mm -hmm. <laughs> um, who has sex with everybody. Um, just whoever, you know, I, I'm going to... You and me, right? Yeah. Now. When they introduce, like, basically any female character, probably aside from Barbara, it's yeah, like, yeah, oh, exactly. like, we yeah. hang out. And there's a reason why not we, Barbara. You know, but I'm familiar with her. Uh, if you read the book. <laughs> and then um, the weapon that he uses to kill the Courtney is they don't have guns anymore. So he has to get one from an antiques dealer. It's a really strange device. It's got, it's a gun. But it also has a knife attached to it on the bottom. It's very phallic. <laughs> and when he kills him, he puts it in his mouth. There's all this kind of weird Freudian stuff going on. I think I mentioned um, Mary's love for Lincoln Powell, but he doesn't return that feeling. And then he kind of falls for Barbara. Um, there's, those feelings are kind of repressed at first, but then they really only come out when he becomes her father figure when she's regressed to childhood that was a whole thing yeah so reading that stuff where uh he had like these like like you said repressed feelings hey, for dad. but then she like started you? calling him and, like and he's dad, like you know how and, like, i feel right and then when she eventually becomes like a full-fledged like woman again i guess it's mm -hmm. like We're you like, know i love okay, you always this is weird you. but like, yeah in early sci-fi that what they weren't able to do what they did later, a lot of science fiction later on became very frank and open about sexuality, but you couldn't do that in the early days. So I guess this is one way of dealing with it. There's also kind of what was going on at the time in the world. Um, you get this kind of feeling. Um, it was the 1950s. The, the big threat at the time was, was communist Soviet Union. Uh, everybody was worried. They were, you know, they always had the, the nuclear drills mm -hmm. with kids getting under their desks and, um, drop and, and hide from and don't look at the flash that kind of thing um, and I think in a way the espers kind of represent the the way that the American people had a preoccupation with infiltrators at the time uh, reading our minds that spies are, are here listening to our thoughts and trying to figure out what we're gonna do next and if you know anything about history um, the House on American Activities Committee and Joseph McCarthy were holding hearings all the time and, you know, finding so-called communists in every part of the government. You know, on yeah. the surface, everything's fine, but underneath, there are these people that could be reading my thoughts. Uh, and I have to be careful not to let them know too much about the way we live our lives, you know. Um, so I think that's kind of an undercurrent. Reich is this very American male character. Um, this is this, this is set in the 2400s, so it's set in the future, but it's a very 1950s male way of looking at things. Um, everything out there is an enemy. It's against me. Only I can do what I gotta do and take care of the world, and I can't tolerate any rivals. I gotta get rid of this Cray to Courtney guy because he's threatening my business. You know, so eliminate all competition. Get rid of that. Bester does this thing with typography. Um, <laughs> Nowadays, it's really common because we have text speak and, and we've been doing it with emails for 20 plus years now, um, where you use like the at sign for at or the ampersand and thing for and. Um, so Sam Atkins spells his name with the at sign K-I-N-S. 
Uh, and Duffy Wygan spells her name W-Y-G and the little ampersand symbol. Um, those are kind of cool. I mean, I thought when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's really neat. This is 1952. How did he come up with that? Um, but the more it goes on, it's like, okay, we get it. You're just being clever now. This looks pretty futuristic. I'm sure in the future they'll try to, like, you know, cut corners right? any way they can. But, even I mean, with, if, like, on the other hand, if you think writing about out it, my name, I'm going to use the A lot of us do that anyway with our online personas. I mean, Instagram, you don't use your real name. Um, I mean, most people don't. So you're using stuff like this all the time anyway, so... It was very ahead Definitely. of its time. It was it was very clever and uh, uh, and kind of true. <laughs> and then uh, there's this crime noir aspect uh, aspect of it um, that would, was kind of new uh, to sci-fi. There was crime noir and there was sci-fi, and they never really came together until this book. Now there's a lot of them, uh, and this was kind of the first book that ever really put crime noir and science fiction together. Um, and it's a really good combination. I think they re really go together pretty well. I wanted to say, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely if you like any kind of crime novel, if you like any kind of science fiction at all, it's just definitely. a very harmonious combination of the two and very entertaining to read. So how many stars? How m I, I liked it. I think it was yeah. really great. Joe Walton, who I mentioned before, didn't really think it was the best book of the year. She gives a whole list of other books um, that she might have preferred over it. But I, th I thought it was really good. No, probably deserved mm -hmm. to win the no the uh, the Hugo that year. And okay. then the next book we're going to be reading is called is The Forever Machine. Um, and I'll tell you this now, it's not supposed to be a great book. <laughs> it is widely considered the worst book to ever win the Hugo Award, uh, which is really sad for it being the second one, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's sad, but it's also kind of exciting. We'll make a show of it. It's going to be fun. We definitely want to say too thank yes. you to all of our coworkers who have been so incredibly supportive and have really like they're gonna make a little book club out of this. Some of them are, and it's it's very cool, and we're very thankful for all of our coworkers and also to uh, Annabella Ortiz. She is illustrating. Uh, it's not done yet, so but she's exciting. illustrating our like so graphic exciting. for our show yeah. and kind of our logos. And this first episode, definitely be patient with us. We're kind of going into everything blind, but we're gonna put the work <laughs> in, and hopefully future episodes. Hopefully, it's not a chore be, listening uh, to us. Easier to listen to. If this yeah. is not easy. Hopefully, this I one's hope amazing. Not. I hope not. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Yeah, that was our inaugural, <laughs> inaugural episode. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening to right. SciFix. We'll see you next time.